0: This presentation is from Design Leadership 2020. Our last presentation for the afternoon and for this year's conference comes from Ian Barker. Um, Ian is a a good friend of mine, a business uh, partner of mine and a uh, long time collaborator. Um, I'm very, very fortunate uh, to work with Ian on a regular basis so, uh, joining us from Manly Vale in Sydney, welcome, Ian. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? Very good. What a what a lovely day it's been. So, let me see if I can get this uh, shindigle working. Bear with me. Always a bit nerve wracking. So, first off, uh, big thanks to Steve. Annabelle and all the others I know who are involved in pulling this event together. Thank you very much. Um, I've got the privilege of bringing this event to a close. Um, My talk certainly treads lightly on many themes that have already been covered in a bit more detail today. And um, probably to double down, um, nicely bookends with what you heard from Zoe at the start of the day. So my talk comes with healthy doses of optimism, pragmatism, and a bit of opportunism. Um, my talk is about designing better organizations, which benefits from good dollops of all three of those things. Um, so first and foremost, I'm an optimist, working as a human-centered designer, as I have done for over 25 years, and taking human insight into the darkened corners of organizational mincing machines, one has to be an optimist to keep going. I firmly believe that things can be better. I've seen enough things work out for the good from very unpromising beginnings. I don't believe that most people make bad decisions because they're evil. I'm a think that people make bad decisions and influence bad kind of changes inside organizations because they lack better data. They don't have the, the human insight that we're fortunate enough to have. I'm also a pragmatist. I appreciate that what is best for customers and those at our organization's coalface is just a perspective of what is better. And it isn't always practical for organizations to simply implement what customers perceive to be the best thing. Just because it's desirable doesn't actually mean it's viable or feasible. Just because they want it doesn't necessarily mean that we should give it to them. Rather than polarizing this situation, I believe that one must explore the grey between the extremes and find the sweet spot. I also believe we need to think beyond the traditional lens of desirability, viability and feasibility. We need to apply an ethical lens and ask, should we? We need to consider the longer term consequences of our actions. What implications does this thing that we're about to do have for humans, for the planet? And I also appreciate that it isn't often about just finding the right solution. It's about finding the thing that works best in the current context, where the political, the emotional, the organizational wheel is blowing. And I'm saying this as a precursor to my talk, because I believe that right now, there is an amazing opportunity to help organizations reinvent themselves for good. And we must seize this opportunity and help them become better versions of themselves. Out of the horrors of the COVID-19 situation, there is an opportunity for a golden age of better, more human-centred organisations. Organisations that do things for people, society and the planet, rather than in profit-obsessed self-interest that is fixated on growth just for the sake of growth. But to seize this opportunity, we as design leaders must step forward. We must apply ourselves to higher order design challenges, what Dr. Richard Buchanan refers to as fourth order design challenges. We can't simply wait for organisational leadership to sort this out themselves or wait for the invite to arrive. History shows that at times like this, neoliberals also double down. Time is rich with opportunity, but also risk. The stakes at the moment are very high. So my talk today comes in three parts. I'm going to start off by talking about some interesting trends and things that we've learned in the last couple of years, post-Hane Royal Commission and pre-COVID. Things were changing, and I think it's worthwhile reminding ourselves of that. Then I'm going to talk about our moment of crisis, uh, with particular focus on the opportunities for reimagination that it brings. And finally, I'm going to talk about what this all means for us as design leaders, what we should be you doing now and what we'll need to be doing in the coming months and I'll try and leave some time and opportunity for questions. So part one the direction of things and the things we've learned in recent years. I think in Australia the Hayne Royal Commission has left us in no doubt that incentives eat well-meaning customer-centered rhetoric for lunch. An organization can shout all it wants about how much it cares about customers, that it is customer-obsessed but actions speak louder than words. And if your incentives encourage non-customer-centered actions, then your words mean nothing at all. And sadly, this isn't unique to the financial services industry. A study by the US National Bureau of Economic Research involving 400 executives found that 80% would choose short-term solutions that enable them to meet their incentivized targets, fully aware that those choices would have a negative impact on longer-term ambitions should be of no surprise to any of you, but incentives drive behavior. So you better incentivize the right things. And also what incentivizes behavior doesn't need to be as explicit as money and bonuses. But most organizations really struggle to find concrete ways of incentivizing the organization to do the right things for customers. Reflecting on the fallout from the Hain Royal Commission, Peter Collins, Director for the Centre of Ethical Leadership, said, Businesses continually set up incentive schemes and talk of being committed to the best interests of their customers, yet incentivise their employees to sell. It's an ethical trap, and it's almost impossible for rational employees not to sell. At the heart of this tension, this ethical trap between customer-centered rhetoric and incentivized organizational reality, lies the organization's purpose. Put simply, if an organization exists for the purpose of making money, then all bets are off as to what staff will do to achieve that objective. For most organizations, it's not as extreme as having a profit-obsessed purpose. Thankfully, we're not still living in the greed is good times of the 90s. Rather than a bold statement of capitalistic intent, for most organizations, true purpose has actually slowly been eroded over a number of decades, as demands to hit targets have efficiently squeezed the humanity out of all the organisation once stood for. We've been left with many hypocritical organizations, ones that know better. They say one thing, yet act quite differently. We have many organisations that have a thin, customer-centred veneer. They're living a customer-centred lie. I won't name names, but I'm sure that you can think of many such organisations. It may sound very negative and defeatist, and I will bore you up towards the end, believe me. But in light of the Hayne Royal Commission, many of us have come to the conclusion that human-centred design is simple, well-meaning, expensive, and completely empty rhetoric if it is not supported by the organization's purpose. Or to put it another way, a profit-minded purpose will undermine human-centered design however much money is thrown at human-centered design. Now, hopefully this won't be the case for all of you, hopefully not for any of you. Some of you will have much rosier experiences and some of you will be willfully ignorant of what's really going on, what's really driving things inside your organization. What is particularly interesting about the fallout from the Hain Royal Commission was that the ripples extended far beyond the financial services industry. The reason for this is that the executives and directors weren't able to simply throw frontline staff under a bus. They couldn't say staff went rogue, staff misinterpreted organizational direction. The commission concluded that staff were conducting the incentivized actions of their organizations. And as a consequence, executives, and directors of all types of organisations are suddenly realising that they're responsible for organisational culture and the lived behaviours of staff in the organisation's name. And this is causing serious concern and sleepless nights. There's been a growing acceptance that this obsession uh, with for short term is actually the root cause of this problem. Some have called it the church of finance, others shareholder primacy or profiteering. And in the public sector, it gets called electioneering. Whatever you label it, this over-indexing of the short, over-the-longer term is increasingly accepted as a root cause of this malaise. We now see on display at the Royal Commission the bitter fruits of a focus on shareholder primacy. A challenge prevailing orthodoxy is long overdue a chairman of ANZ Bank a realisation is beginning that for companies to be successful they have to have a broader purpose than just making profits in the short term and Ken Henry the chairman and now ex-chairman of NAB said as much in his final submission to the Hain Royal Commission had we been more concerned about the customer circumstance had we been running the business in the interests of the customer rather than profit and loss and the balance sheet those risk categories wouldn't have mattered so much. He went on to say, though, that such a change would be incredibly difficult inside an organisation whose purpose is generating shareholder value. And sadly, we hear a similar refrain about the obsession with short-termism from the public sector. Addressing the Institute of Public Administration, the CEO of the Business Council of Australia, Jennifer Westacott, said, I fear that many modern politicians have lost sight of the fundamental role of the public service. Its custodianship of the long-term policy agenda has been eroded by short-term thinking. The belief that organisations should serve a longer-term, higher-order purpose than simply to make money though, has been hiding in plain sight for a long time. Peter Drucker, who pretty much wrote every book about business management theory, said... Profit is not the explanation, cause or rationale of business behavior and business decisions, but rather the test of their validity. And the world's richest person agrees. Proactively delighting customers earns trust, which earns more business from most customers, even in new business arenas. Take a long-term view and the interests of customers and shareholders align. And then in August of last year, The Business Roundtable, a U.S. non-profit organization, announced a new statement on the purpose of an organization. Their statement says, we commit to delivering value to our customers, investing in our employees, dealing fairly and ethically with our suppliers, supporting the communities in which we work, generating long-term value for shareholders. What was so seismic was that this commitment to a broader definition of organizational purpose wasn't the theory of a few left field academics. It was signed up to by the CEOs and directors of 181 leading US registered organizations, including the CEOs of Apple, Amazon, BP, ExxonMobil, Ford, General Motors, the list goes on. What I most like about this statement, what I find most encouraging, is the broadening of who the organisation exists for, and that this even stretches to the environment and sustainable practices. And I love that the shareholder value is explicitly long-term shareholder value. This broadening of purpose from shareholder primacy to stakeholders and a broader definition of stakeholders feels a significant and necessary trigger for any real change inside an organization. And this wasn't only gaining traction outside of Australia. Late last year, when speaking to the American Chamber of Commerce, Andy Penn, CEO of Telstra said, the foundational Friedman concept that the sole purpose of business is to maximize value for shareholders has been debunked in a world where business and its role within society is being redefined. A significant re-evaluation of neoliberal economics was was well underway. The purpose of organisations wasn't just being questioned by left-leaning, human-centred softies like you and me. Organisational leadership were also questioning their purpose and beginning to dream of other ways of being. You may not have received the call just yet, but many designers were being asked to lift their focus. The the focus of their efforts was changing. A change of the materiality of what we were designing was well underway. Instead of products and services and experiences, we were at the dawn of being asked to design policy, culture, purpose, organizations themselves. The signs of change were gathering. It wasn't business as usual. And at the back end of 2019, all signs were that 2020 was to be a significant year in terms of the advancement of design, of organizational design, of designing organizational purpose. And then we get to the beginning of this year and our current moment of crisis. The impact that COVID-19 has brought upon the lives of every living person and organisation, save for a few Belarusian footballers, is the work of dystopian science fiction. Scant months ago, few would have been able to conceive of the impact and sheer scale that the virus has wrought upon all aspects of our personal and working lives. Our spare bedrooms have become the latest office space. Many of us have found second careers as teachers, Our purview stretches no further than the end of our gardens. The weekly trip to the supermarket has become a highlight rather than a necessity. Multi-million dollar organisations have gone into complete hibernation. The economics of entire industries have disappeared overnight. We've seen the relationship between the public and private sector shift like never before. The government is paying us to keep people employed and we've seen changes implemented in days that would have been unimaginable beforehand. And through all this, our appreciation of the systemic connectedness between things is or should be greater than ever before. Who would have thought that a person eating something at a market somewhere would have sent the shelves of Woolworths clear of toilet paper? And also the appreciation of the humanity of our loved ones, those we work with, those we distance from, those who are suffering should be greater than ever before. During the last few months, we've seen the best and worst of humanity. Organisations and individuals philanthropically supporting each other, whilst others profit from the situation. For some, there was an expectation. There's maybe even a hope that at some point in the very near future, all of this is just going to be done and dusted, and it will simply snap back to the old business as usual. And even if that were desirable, which I challenge The ability to switch back to the old ways, like turning a light bulb on, feels like a work of some highly optimistic fiction. The act of transitioning from this COVID-imposed way of being into the next thing, is in itself something ripe for conscious design, as is the potential uneven pogoing that we're gonna experience as people emerge from these hibernations. But I feel the greatest opportunity, the one that I urge all of you to lean into, is to actually take this as an opportunity to reshape what organizations are, to put the final nail into the profit obsessions and to redefine the purpose of our organizations. This is an opportunity to join the dots between those emergent trends that I alluded to and the need for organizations to take stock, to strategize and envision what the organization looks like in the new world order. In the words of the arch neoliberal Milton Friedman, Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When the crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. Whilst many are currently in a survivalistic mindset, just trying to make their way through this, Make no mistake, people with less human-centred agendas than ours are acting their ideas that have been lying around to reset the economies. We need to be channeling the optimism, pragmatism, and opportunism that I alluded to at the start of my talk to salvage something positive from this horrific situation. We need to make sure that the ideas that are lying around are ones that are giddy with hope optimism and humanity, rather than ones that are full of greed, profiteering, and competition. Now, obviously, as we do this, we need to be highly sensitive. As a business owner myself, I know how down on their haunches that many organizations are. Many will have the necessity to find money quickly just to survive. But if we step back from this opportunity rather than lean forward, there is no doubt that more ruthless, profit-obsessed folk will step forward and capitalise and send us spiralling backwards from the precipice that we were just coming to. As Naomi Klein has voiced frequently and most succinctly in the shock doctrine, there are many wealthy people for whom profiteering from a crisis is not at all problematic. Right now, the time is right for a positive, systemic, human-centred change like we've never seen before. So rather than allowing our organisations to attempt to snap back to their previous shape or be manipulated by money men, we should be helping organisations to take shapes previously unseen and instill at the heart of the organisation a higher order purpose that recognises the importance of humans and the environment, not simply profiteering. So what does this all mean for us? For some of us, there's going to be a natural tendency at a time like this to simply want to shelter, to hunker down, to put one's head in the sand and wait for someone else to work this out. Maybe you assume your opinion isn't wanted or that this has implications above one's pay grade. Maybe you think that design doesn't actually have a role to play. Leave it to the MBAs, the strategists, the executives and the accountants to work it out. But if you leave this to those experts and rationalists, don't be surprised where they take you. For others, your inclination may be to simply cross your fingers and hope that one day we'll wake up and things will magically have snapped back to the way that they were. But as well as not really being realistic for many of our businesses and industries, as we heard in the first half of my talk, simply returning to the old business as usual probably isn't actually that desirable for many industries. So, for the remainder of this talk, I wanna share some ideas about things which you and your organisations should be doing at a time like this. These aren't necessarily sequential, and some of you will hopefully already be doing some of these things. Some of them tie very nicely with things we've already heard today. So, action one, be part of the conversation. I think it's essential that human-centered design is a key part of this strategic organizational conversation. We need to believe there is a legitimacy in value in us being part of this. At a time when purpose is up for debate, strategy needs to be redefined and business models need to be rethought, it is essential to ensure that things other than a narrow-minded self-interest are being considered by decision-makers. Organizations should fight this natural tendency to get their most senior people in the room, lock the door, throw away the key, and let their collective expertise sort this out. This is a wicked problem involving complex, adaptive, interconnected systems. One needs to think big to see the connections between things, to understand different perspectives and experimentally try and perhaps fail to inform a course of action. And our human-centred, empathy-building, collaborative and iterative approach is precisely what is most required at a time like this. Some of us won't have the experience of applying ourselves to these types of organisational challenges, but believe me, the exact same process that we use to design better customer experiences can equally apply to these types of challenges. The materiality of what we're designing and maybe who we're designing for is shifting. we don't need to change the way that we work co-designing with others making things tangible and real thinking outside of silos and seeing the bigger picture prototyping and testing challenging assumptions all of these are core aspects of the mindsets that are required and the mindsets that are also in common in experts who may be traditionally drawn to organizational strategizing the stakes are simply too high for organizations to leave this to those experts to come up with their expert solutions. Organizations need to be embracing collaborative design approaches to help their way through this. So if your organization is sitting on its hands or strategizing is going on in some ivory tower somewhere without a collaborative design process, step one is to get on the front foot and make a case for the role design can be playing in helping organizations through this. One needs to metaphorically or quite literally knock on the door and get invited in rather than denigrating the value that experts in the room have rather than trying to lord it over them. I would strongly encourage you to empathize with them. The leadership of an organization is an unenviable and stressful position at the best of times. A time of crisis like this, it only amplifies the concerns. One needs to build credibility and show how design approaches can help organizations navigate through challenges like this. So if you don't have your own stories to share about how to build credibility, use ours use at MELDS, or use others that you read about in books to put sustainable practices at the core of decision-making, to, to create human-centered policy across government. The, the list goes on in terms of the types of things that design has already been used for. Design can and should have a significant role in helping organizations navigate precisely the types of challenges which they're facing. Action two, redefining organizational purpose. The tendency for many organizations at a time like this is likely to be highly tactical. How do we turn this ship around and quickly? They're likely to be operational fires that need to be fought, supply lines that are cut. So a lurch to tactical efforts will be necessary but it should not be all-consuming. If we embark purely on tactical endeavors without giving ourselves the opportunity to stop and question the bigger why, then this is an opportunity missed. As I mentioned in the first half of my talk, there is a distinct trend towards organizations reevaluating the purpose of the organization. If we simply put out the fires and tactically get our supply lines flowing, there is a distinct risk that we will help the organization shift back to an outmoded, organizational purpose so finding a real organizational purpose is simple to say hard to implement and will be impossible to succeed without and what's really good is we can start doing this now you don't need to wait until we're outside of lockdown to enable this to occur so we should be questioning why does this organization exist what what purpose do we serve for our customers and the simplest way to find this purpose is to ask yourselves, what is it we do for those outside our organisation? Or even better still, to go out and actually ask those individuals. A good purpose will connect the, the heart and head. It's both rational and emotional. Typically, you find that organisations with a well-defined purpose that they live, serving the needs of people outside the organisation, they're highly successful businesses. For years, we've optimized and squeezed efficiencies out of our processes, we've become so lean that in many cases, there isn't any more fat to discard. The church of finance has become the purpose for many high profile organizations. Without a higher order purpose, a a north star to to guide by, it is impossible for an organization to actually navigate to a better place. Action three is to live the purpose. The real challenge isn't simply creating an organizational purpose. The challenge is in aligning the organization to live by that purpose. After all, many organizations have a great organizational purpose. It's just metaphorically gathering dust somewhere. The questions we need to be asking are, how should staff act to bring this purpose to life in a range of different scenarios? And then, do staff actually act in that way that is aligned to our purpose? If if the two don't match, how might we encourage staff to exhibit behaviors aligned to our purpose? Rather than a a top-down directive, this is best achieved through collaborative exploration. How might we bring this purpose to life in this scenario? To live the organisational purpose, organisations need to not only define what that purpose is, but also build the scaffolding to encourage staff to live that purpose and change the way that we work around here. Values need to be defined and associated behaviours need to be identified and encouraged. And crucially, as many of the previous speakers have said, mindsets need to be shifted to those new values. And all of these things need to be reinforced by the organisation. This isn't easy and it isn't quick. It's not sufficient for somebody senior to simply bark out the new purpose and demand that we comply. New behaviors need to be nurtured and rewarded. Old behaviors need to be recognized and discouraged. And the anxiety and potential status impact for all individuals also needs to be recognized. This can be a a deeply confusing and unsettling time for staff, For this to be a success, they also need to be taken on a journey. Mindsets need to be changed, not simply new rules imposed. And an important activity to keep an organisation on track is to build strategic empathy. Action four, build strategic empathy. For too long, if empathy and insights are valued at all by an organisation, They've been exclusively conducted by small teams of ethnographers who share insights into project teams. And although this has great value for the projects or programs that receive those insights, it's often relatively tactical in its nature. The insights rarely live beyond the project or see life outside the project team. As I said, I'm an optimist. I genuinely believe that people who make bad decisions, such as the ones we saw in the Haynes Royal Commission, aren't on the whole evil. I generally believe that they're not just aware of the the human and environmental impact of their decisions. Their decisions are based on viability and feasibility, rational numbers-based decisions, because that's the data that they have available to them. And this... uh, The optimism that I have here appears to be borne out by the reactions that directors had to the Royal Commission when presented with the insights about the impact this has had on people, most recoiled in horror of the realities of the situation. Some of the stories make you want to go in a corner and weep and some of the most vulnerable people have been affected. We need to really unpick the cultural issues that have got us to this point where people who in their day-to-day lives would see themselves as abiding by a set of moral principles when at work somehow let those principles slide. And from outside the financial sector, I'm heartened to report that we at MELD have seen similar examples of executives and boards make significantly different decisions when presented with qualitative insights. When presented with the richness of the insight afforded by our type of research, many senior people are appalled at the decisions that they were about to sign off on. And as a consequence, we've seen changes in terms of the decisions that are being made. Decision makers aren't on the whole evil. Most don't inherently want to do things that hurt people, but their role doesn't traditionally afford them the type of access to qualitative insight that ours does. It's far easier to make more balanced, better decisions if you have more rounded data upon which to draw. In most organizations, the most senior you get, the more distance you become from understanding what's really going on. You get all the numbers and data in the world, but you don't get that insight. And this empathy gap grows between what's really going on and the, the senior decision-making. Even organisations that regularly do human-centred design research into the needs and experiences of people, they seldom share these insights with the most senior decision makers inside the organisation. Or if they do, it's myopically focused on just insights specifically about one thing rather than adding value to a bigger picture understanding. So, an easy and impactful thing you can do relatively quickly if you conduct research is think about sharing the the summaries of your insights with an audience beyond your immediate project team. Helping close this gap between customers and frontline staff and the most senior decision-makers. As uh, a previous speaker has said, the challenge can often be time for these individuals. Our most senior decision-makers aren't exactly time-rich so, making time to read a, a long customer insights report or sit through presentations can be limited and quite dry. And traditional ways in which these leaders and executives experience the front line can either be confrontational or highly staged. Many will think that their universe smells of fresh paint, or will hear such vitriol when they visit the front line that they're discouraged from ever doing so again. So for many, decision makers in in organizations, customer insight has been boiled down to a couple of pull quotes and or a number. Our customer satisfaction is up 0.1. This may tick a customer box inside the organization, but it sucks any real insight, understanding or empathy from what is really going on. They have no ability to use what they're presented with to actually make better decisions. So the aim of a strategic empathy program is to remove this empathy gap. It is to ensure that leadership knows what's really going on. There are many forms that this can take. I, I won't go into all of them, but it, you know, the characteristics are that it occurs regularly, that they're as natural as possible, that they're broad and open in their scope, and that there's an opportunity for active listening. This isn't a time for the senior individuals to justify or defend their actions. So, you know, this could be contextual research or virtual contextual research, as um, some of you may have been experiencing like me. Um, Visiting contact centers and getting that that sense of what's really going on, because contact centers hear it quite loudly often. Or quarterly meta insights reports, asking your teams that are conducting research to distill that down and to provide a a snapshot to um, specifically to senior audiences. Or organisational ecosystem maps, which are distinct and different, and I'll come on to this in a moment, from customer journey maps, something which tells the bigger picture understanding rather than just builds the understanding of the customer through, through one form of interaction. Or if time doesn't allow for any of those things, then documentary films, something to bring the richness of the frontline back to the head office. These things will create fertile ground for a different, more human-centred culture to flourish inside the organisation. So action five is helping people see the bigger picture. As we operationalize these new ways of being, it's important that we don't sliver back to our old silo ways of working. Most silos end up in competition and dysfunction rather than becoming a strength. Size and diversity actually often becomes a weakness for an organization. In recent years, we've seen tools like customer journey maps become adopted to help organizations understand customer experiences. And as much as I love customer journey maps, I'm slightly saddened to see that organizations have begun to structure themselves by customer journey, and it becomes a new form of siloing. What is required to augment this is an ecosystem view, a perspective which transcends the silos, whatever they look like, and provides enough glue to bind the organization together to inform strategic decision making to raise maturity around the connectedness of things and the experiences of others, to create greater insight and understanding. All of these things should lead to better, more rounded decisions. So at MELD, we do things like organizational ecosystem maps to look at snapshot of what's currently going on so people can get an understanding of the big picture together, importantly, together. We've also started doing things like responsible leadership decision making tools and programs and these prompt teams to reflect on things of significance things about the organization, the ecological considerations the human realm topics, which they should be thinking about. Ultimately, we're not trying to make decisions for them. We're not trying to replace the traditional decision makers. We we come in peace. We're not a threat. We're, We're optimistic that these people want to make better decisions and will make better decisions if we give them the data, tools and prompts to do that. This may sound terribly idealistic and perhaps it is inside some organizations, but believe me, it can and does work. We've got 10 years of experience of doing precisely this type of work. Organizations can change, and most need to. And finally, get started now. The truth is that you can get started with all of these things that I've spoken about right now. You don't need to wait until we're back in the office to do this stuff, in fact, quite the contrary. Design work needs to go on right now, both for our emergence from lockdown and in creating the vision of what we wanna reemerge into. These things need to be consciously explored and designed. Before we all get started, or before all this COVID situation got started, we were drifting towards recognition that organisations can be better things and that we as designers have a role to play in influencing what that looks like. Rather than now becoming passive, we need to take this as an opportunity to accelerate this transition. Rather than enabling short-term necessities to once again stymie human centeredness and send us spiralling backwards, we need to confidently step forward, now is a time to double down. Now is a time to follow through on all the encouraging noises that we've heard over the last few years. I'm an optimist. I really believe this can happen. But I'm also a pragmatic person. It, is, it isn't easy, and you'll probably don't have people asking you to get involved in this. But hopefully I've convinced you that there is an opportunity here. Sarah Stokes likes to quote Jimi Hendrix, I'll go for Dylan every time, other than maybe all along the watchtower. As bleak as this recent time has been, the darkest hour is just before the dawn. If we grab it, there is an opportunity to piece together the various fragments I've described and for us as design leaders to play an important role in helping create better organisations. I wish you all the best of luck with that endeavour and I'm very happy to lend Mel's expertise in helping organisations with these transitions. Organisations can be better, fairer things, but make a more positive impact on people and planet. Organizations can have a purpose other than growth for growth's sake, or trying to make money. Let's use our human-centered skills to help build better organizations. My name's Ian. I look forward to hearing from some of you because this has been quite a weird experience. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks very much Ian. That was fabulous. Thank you.